Spikes is free and it always will be, which is why we need your help. We don't have a paywall or bonus content for paying customers because we want our arguments for freedom and democracy against misanthropy and identity politics to reach as many people as possible. This is why we ask those of our listeners and readers who can afford to, to chip in. One-off donations are hugely appreciated, but monthly donations are even better. They allow us to plan for the future and to grow. Even £5 a month is a huge help. It's much cheaper than your average magazine subscription, and it ensures that Spiked is free and open to all. To make either a monthly or a one-off donation, just go to spikes-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, on with the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, are Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the not-so-super league and the excommunication of Richard Dawkins. Today will be a referendum on how far America has come. We're looking for a guilty verdict. I'm praying the verdict is the right verdict. We, the jury in the above entitled matter, as to count two, third-degree murder, find the defendant guilty. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. A jury has unanimously found police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of murdering George Floyd. Eleven months after Chauvin was filmed with his knee on Floyd's neck, jurors unanimously found him guilty on three counts of second and third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. The George Floyd murder outraged the US and the world. It sparked enormous protests across America under the banner of Black Lives Matter. But because of that movement, there has been a palpable sense that it was not just Derek Chauvin, the killer cop, who was on trial. Some saw America itself in the dock. A lawyer for the Floyd family described the trial as a referendum on American justice, for instance. Tom, what have you made of this enormous news? Well, like many people, I think when you first saw the verdict come in, there was a profound sense of relief. I don't think anyone who has followed this trial, certainly anyone who watched the original video, who wouldn't line up with what the jury decided upon. I mean, the kind of unspeakable depravity of that killing was obvious for all to see. You know, the defence's attempt to try and suggest that Chauvin's knee on Floyd's neck was almost incidental to his death that day. I think that was, you know, completely taken apart by the various different witnesses, many of them from the Minneapolis police themselves. Very convincing. There are questions around that trial itself, given the interference and the comments made by Joe Biden, Maxine Waters, Mm. others. But nevertheless, I think many people quite rightly feel that justice has been done. But I think, as you suggested in your introduction, the context around this and the context which has existed around this for the past year, we really can't ignore. This was about so much more than one particular murder, as it has now been judged to be, uh, but about something much bigger. And if this was a conversation, a bigger conversation, about how you can properly reform policing, change it fundamentally, root and branch, make sure that these kinds of murderous, fatal interactions don't happen again. It's become a discussion about something very different. It's been exploited quite effectively by certain people in this discussion to cement a kind of ideology, which is to suggest that this wasn't one horrendous killing which united pretty much all of America against the cop involved, but just a playing out of America's original sin that this 
is and forever was America's lot, that black people are permanent victims are subjects even of a kind of low-level genocide and that all white people effectively need to repent for their role in that. Over the past year, we've seen that very much affirmed. And in the conversation after it, we've seen that very much. I just kind of think that in another era, this particular trial could have been a moment for kind of quite cautious optimism. Yeah, Justice being done in a situation where people thought it would never be done in relation to a rogue police officer killing a, a black man. But that's not the time that we live in. The narrative is controlled by a certain kind of identitarian group of people and outlook, which I think is fundamentally not interested in things getting better. I think we saw that in the wake of the trial. You saw that from comments of people saying that this isn't actually justice because we need to go further. You saw that in the response to the Micaiah Bryant shooting in Columbus, Ohio afterwards, where this was leapt on instantly as a indication of how things haven't really changed, despite the fact that within hours, basically, footage was released to show that the 16-year-old girl who was tragically shot in this instance was lunging at someone with a knife at the time. But still the desperation to maintain the narrative that nothing fundamentally has changed was so, so strong. And I think what it really demonstrated was that for the sake of actually trying to overcome the issues that were raised by the Floyd trial, it's so important that the narrative and the debate is reclaimed from that perspective, which is fundamentally interested in continuing to so division and paint the most almost absurdly bleak and fatalistic picture of the state of America and indeed the world in relation to race. So whilst you want to be kind of cautiously optimistic about the way forward, I don't think anyone should be um, given the nature of the discussion as it's unfolded over the past 11 months. It should have been this unifying moment. You're right. And, um, you know, police officers aren't often brought to justice. It's good to see that happen. Um, They're often defending their own, as many institutions do. But one of the most kind of grotesque responses, and you know, this plays into this this idea that you know the narrative comes above all else, was from uh, Nancy Pelosi, who actually said, "Thank you, George Floyd." You know, said, said that he had essentially sacrificed himself for justice, which is a very strange reading of the situation. You know, he was murdered; he didn't sacrifice himself for anything. He shouldn't have died, but it illustrated just how clearly that this horrific crime had essentially been exploited for to form a part of a greater narrative that the actual incident itself kind of had lost all meaning for a while i mean it'd been brought back into like in in light of the case and you know you did have this response from aoc saying that justice hadn't been done the aclu saying that justice hadn't been done that real justice would have been george floyd not dying at all but we should have been able to say in this instance the system worked we can move on let's hope it keeps working in the future because it hasn't in many occasions but in some ways, it has made the conversation about race worse than it was a week ago. The outcome of this trial that should have provided some certainty has created more division and more uncertainty and more rancor about race. And that's what's quite worrying. Ella? It's this difficult situation that you end up being in when you have to kind of ask, how do you fix these problems and who's to blame? And rather than having a nuanced discussion about what the issues are, in particular with the police's relationship with black people in America, and, you know, the fact that this prosecution of Chauvin is, is, you know, an anomaly, actually. I mean, he himself has had over his 19 years as a police officer, you know, over 20 complaints against him and only one resulted in a internal investigation and discipline. He was often targeting black people and he has previously had his knee on people's neck for a prolonged amount of time. So, you know, he as an individual had this coming. But the question of who is to blame often ends up sat, as Thomas referred to, this kind of 
rather shallow, rather infantile, substanceless claim of, you know, the police have to admit that they are institutionally racist and white people in America have to admit that they are complicit in this inherent evil. And in the meantime, nothing actually changes. I mean, one of the the most frustrating things uh, this week has been Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but in particular Joe Biden coming out and saying, you know, something has to be done about this, about the um, scourge of racism in America, that, you know, things have to change. And you want to scream because you think you, Joe Biden, have been right in the middle of political power for years now. You were there with the Obama administration. You were there with the Clinton administration. Actually, the actions that you took politically over those years in relation to law and order have resulted in part of the problem with the police's relationship with black people in America. You know, appointing Kamala Harris as vice president, someone who is directly responsible for the mass incarceration of, you know, large numbers of black people in America. It's just remarkable how he's able to get away with talking in platitudes. The reason why he's able to get away with that is because of the nature of this really shallow discussion about racism. I mean, black people in America watching the Chauvin trial will be thinking about all the times that no, they weren't sort of had their necks kneeled on by police officers or were targeted in overtly racist ways, but will be thinking about the fact that they are more likely to get thrown in jail for taillights uh, being broken, that they're more likely to be thrown in jail for petty drug crimes, you know, in relation to small amounts of marijuana and things like that. And people start to connect the dots. And rather than kind of launching into this ridiculous conspiracy uh, idea that, you know, all white people in America are inherently against black people. We should be asking targeted questions about what it is within the uh, system of policing that has been going wrong for so long and it continues to go wrong. That targets in particular young black men in America. You're not ever going to be able to have that discussion when everyone seems to be either talking in platitudes or screaming about institutional racism. I think you you mentioned Joe Biden, Ella. I mean, his comments were a really good illustration of how the people who you know, speak the most about systemic racism and, all, and and make those kind of accusations are just not helping. I mean, he essentially implied that there was a correct verdict of this trial before the jury had reached their decision. Now, he had he said that, fortunately, while the jury was sequestered. But you also had people like Congresswoman Maxine Waters essentially saying that there would pretty much be riots and confrontation if Chauvin was not convicted of murder. Now, the judge even had to rebuke her for saying that that could be grounds for Chauvin's appeal. So in, in a sense, you have this horrible tension where the people who are you know, doing their grandstanding actually are making justice more difficult in this case. They're exploiting this case for their own ends, but not actually you know, helping justice to be done. And I actually think, just picking up on some of what Ella said, that the racialization of this particular issue, i.e. police killings of citizens, has also been a fundamental mistake. So if we're talking about questions around mass incarceration, the drug war, the disparate impacts that has had on black communities, that's very clear cut. But one thing which um, never really gets talked about is the fact that to a larger extent, this is a broader issue than it is just the black community. It's a kind of a class issue to a large extent. You had that landmark Roland Fryer study a few years ago, which found that all things being equal, black people were more likely to have hands put on them by the police and to be cuffed and so on. But when it came to violence and murder from the police or killings from the police, I should say, that this was something which was actually kind of equally distributed. Roland Fryer, an African-American himself, saying it was one of the most remarkable findings that he, of his career, effectively. And I think the kind of missed opportunity to look at this in a kind of root and branch way, in a way that wasn't just funneled into a narrative of hundreds of years of white supremacy has been completely missed. 
And on the one hand, you feel like things aren't going to change. But if anything, I think there's a very good chance that things are going to change for the worse. Mm. There's been some good discussion around questions of um, certain police practices, questions around qualified immunity. All of this stuff is all good debates to be having. But at the same time, there has been this push towards that kind of more amorphous defund the police thing. What it means in each context is a little bit unclear. But it's been obvious that in the wake of George Floyd, some of the policies which have been pursued by certain cities, by certain governments at different levels in the US, have led to um, police scaling back and to surging violent crime in these various different places. And whilst in a kind of ideal utopian society, you know, you would have a situation in which you didn't need the arm wing of the state to keep order in what are often very uh, troubled and crime-ridden communities. We're not in that position. And so mm. the imme- the sudden kind of pulling back that you've seen in places like New York, which had a very good record, by the way, on police shootings, and also was still kind of since the kind of 90s crime drop, was still a relatively safe place in comparison, certainly to other American cities, has seen this huge surge in violent crime and death, mm. which when I interviewed Peter Moskos about this, the former cop and author last year, he said, you know, 99% of these deaths are black and brown people, effectively. And this is as a direct consequence of, at least in part, this discussion around defunding the police, wanting to pull things out. And so that's one of the things that concerns me, was that not only is the broader narrative terrible, divisive, ugly, now has a seal of approval, as we all know, from the highest office in the land in the form of the presidency. But at the same time, the more near-term consequences of this on a policy level are going to be bad um, and are going to be bad precisely for the communities that people are supposedly speaking up for. And communities who, again, when you look at polling, black Americans obviously want better policing. Many of them have had very bad experiences with the police, but it's something like 80% of them want a police presence, which is the same or more than it is currently, because they do have genuine problems that they need to exist. You can hold two thoughts in your head at the same time on this issue, but the inability to do that, the tendency to just fold this into that pre-existing narrative is bad for our discussion about race. It's bad for the increasing racialization of society, which we've talked about, these kind of more subtle cultural problems, if you like. But the material reality, I fear, of a lot of black Americans in particular lives are going to get worse, it feels like, as a result of this discussion that we've had over the past 11 months or so. If you've ever tried to browse incognito mode on Google Chrome, you need to know that it's nowhere near as incognito as you think. Yes, you can hide your history from yourself and anyone else who might use your computer, but you're not hiding it from Google. Google makes its money by tracking your movements online, and that doesn't stop when you open incognito mode. In fact, there's actually a multi-billion dollar class action lawsuit currently going on against Google in California because the name incognito mode has led so many to believe that using it would make their browsing history truly private. So how do you actually keep your data and history hidden from Google and the rest of the tech giants? The best way is with ExpressVPN. One of the main data points used by data harvesters is your IP address. This unique number can be used to identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN users That makes it harder for third parties to identify you or to harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is incredibly easy to use. No matter what device you're on, your phone, your laptop, or your smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button and instant protection is there. 
So if you really want to go properly incognito and protect your privacy, you need to secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash spiked and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked. expressvpn.com slash spiked. On Sunday, 12 of Europe's biggest football clubs announced that they would become the founding members of the European Super League. Six clubs from England, three from Italy and three from Spain would form a breakaway league to rival the UEFA Champions League. The founder clubs would be permanent participants in the league and would not need to qualify. The announcement united football fans in outrage. Protests have been held outside football grounds Even the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, threatened to pass a new law to stop the European Super League in its tracks. By Tuesday, the Super League had collapsed, with all six English clubs withdrawing from the competition. To talk about the Super League, I'm joined by spiked columnist Mick Hume. Mick, could you tell us a bit more, first of all, about the proposal itself? The proposal was, as you say, that the 12 elite clubs, six from England, three from Italy, three from Spain, would be the founding members of this league, backed by several billion pounds worth of finance put in by the American investment bank, JP Morgan. And the key thing that really outraged everybody was that there was to be no relegation Mm. uh, from the Super League, that these uh, founder members would be permanent members uh, come what may. And so the, the whole principle of football that we cling to in England, even though it's largely illusory, that there's a pyramid that you can go up and you can reach the top if you're good enough, uh, would be actually written out of the rules. So that was the thing that really caused the outrage about it, as well as the statements by uh, the president of uh, Real Madrid, who who was going to be the chairman of the new league, who insisted that they were doing this in order to save football for the fans. And they were acting on behalf (laughs) of the fans and expressing the fans' interest. As I said on Spike, if if he really wanted to express the fans' interest this week, he might have had to think about jumping off the top of his stadium. So the key thing about it for me is it's something you should be entirely opposed to if we believe in sport and we believe in football. But it's, what was remarkable was that people acted with such shock as if this had come out of the blue. And actually, mm-hmm. this is just the logical extension of what's been happening to football for years. It's been taken over by um, big money that has become all about corporate sponsorship and global TV audiences. And it's become increasingly divorced from the kind of match-going mass of fans. And everything that's happened in football in the last uh, recent decades has pointed in this direction. And this is the logical endpoint of it. And that is why I also think... Although it's now we're assured it's it's been shelved, which is not the same thing as cancelled. Uh, this is far from mm. the end of it, and um, similar proposals will, will be will be coming back sooner rather than later. Could you speak a bit more to that kind of background, that sort of longer background of big business takeover of football and that kind of the, the, the commercialization of the the sport? Yeah, I mean, first of all, let's not be naive. There's a fundamental contradiction, particularly in English football, and it has been since the beginning of the professional game between the fans who claim kind of moral ownership of the clubs and the people who actually hold the legal deeds to them, mm. whether in the old days it was local capitalists, now it's global ones. But the, but, the, but the tension has been there from the start. You know, I'm a Manchester United fan. Manchester United were invented in 1902 when a, a railwayman's team called Newton Heath, which was going bankrupt, was taken over by Manchester businessmen as a vehicle for selling their beer. And they renamed it Manchester United and moved it to Old Trafford. Arsenal... The Woolwich Arsenal, a South London armaments workers team, was again saved from 
bankruptcy by businessmen who then decided to move it to North London to Highbury because they could make more money that way. So that tension is not new, but it's really come to the much more pointed over the last few decades. So that it is now all about, as I say, corporate sponsorship, global TV audiences. And in many ways, the kind of grin spectacle of football during the lockdown of um, empty stadiums, mm. sanitised crowd noises, you know, with no nasty or naughty songs being sung and no trouble, but a big global TV audience to watch it and pay for it is in many ways the kind of dream of the new football elites. And so, you know, th- as I, this is why I say the, the Super League thing, dreadful though it is, is only the logical extension of what's been happening. Yeah, and, and just thinking of those kind of new football elites, do you, do you think there was something a bit hypocritical about some of their outrage? Because, it, you know, this proposal did seem to unite everyone from, you know, grassroots supporters to UEFA and the footballing bodies and things like that, and, you know, even some big clubs. What do you make of that? The only surprising thing, um, in a way, about this was that the club management, the club owners involved in the Super League seemed to be so surprised that everyone was against it. Mm. It was really a kind of open goal, a tapping for anybody who wanted to do a bit of moral grandstanding uh, by claiming to be on the side of the real fans. The Prime Minister, to his credit, Boris Johnson, unlike his predecessors like Cameron and Blair, has never pretended to know one end of a football ground from another. But even he decided to speak up for the fans and you know be on the side of the angels. Whereas actually we know that many of these people, uh, including many of those who are now uh, uh, involved in, in football, profess their love for the beautiful game, but they really despise the ugly people, as they see it, who support the game, and, and often those who play it as well, and they've, they're happy to distance themselves from them. So although they are against the Super League, they share with the owners of the Super League clubs this absolute disdain and contempt for the mass of match-going fans. And that was the basis of the Super League being set up. That was also, I think, why the Super League collapsed so quickly, because they were so distanced from the fans that they were shocked to discover that um, people were, were really against this. And the same cowardice that led them to want to set up a league with no relegation, because that's what it is, basically. It's a kind of loss yeah. of nerve and cowardice in sporting sense. The same cowardice led them to back down very quickly. Although, as I say, I don't think we've heard the last of it for a, by a long stretch. And do you think, you know, is it fair to say that there's almost two forces kind of colonising the game of football? You have the kind of commercial side the commercialisation of it, taking it away from the fans, but also, you know, as you've kind of alluded to, this sort of sanitisation of the game, the desire to make it more PC, this cultural kind of uh, cleansing of football. Absolutely, absolutely, Fraser. And that's something I've been writing about for, for, you know, 30 years. That's exactly the word for it, the sanitisation of the game, the kind of no smoking, no standing, no swearing atmosphere that's been created in, in football and, and always behind, you know, very politically correct banners. We're doing this because we want to reclaim football as a family game. It's never been a family game. Mm. We want to make sure it's inclusive, that the audience is more diverse and that everybody's welcome. And so all of these kind of grandstanding, very worthy slogans are basically used to make sure that people do not behave at football as they always have done. And the point about football is it's always been, like it or not, it's always been the kind of home ground of the id. Mm. The kind of emotional, irrational side of the human psyche, the place where you could go to let off steam and behave in a way that you you weren't allowed to and wouldn't want to behave in normal, civilised society. Uh, Now that's been turned on its head and football's barely been set up as a kind of role model for how to behave nicely and politely in a politically correct fashion in our new sanitised society. And I think that kind of culture war on football fans is at least as important and goes hand in hand with the kind of commercialisation of everything. So finally, Mick, what comes next? It's difficult to know what what can be done. Um, I suppose the setback for the Super League does show that what happened that the people can still make a difference. 
But when you see the way that that's been, the credit for that's been taken by or the establishment and the way in which this kind of fantasy has been spun, that this is somehow an anti-capitalist protest, as one Guardian <laughs> columnist put it, first the Super League, next capitalism. You know, you think that the future does look pretty bleak. What we have to remember is it's football. It's not real life. It is important to, to millions of people. It's, as someone once said, it's the most important, irrelevant thing in the world. <laughs> so you need to keep a, always need to keep a sense of perspective, not lose our sense of perspective. We talk about football, but it is still important, and it is great to see people standing up for it. And it, you know, as football fans are all dreamers, we can all have the dream of standing in those empty stadiums, united and shouting, "Can we have our football back, Mister Senor?" You're listening to the Spikes podcast. This podcast, like all of Spikes content, is free. There's no paywalls or no paid subscriptions. We rely on the support of our loyal listeners and readers like yourself to keep producing our groundbreaking podcasts, interviews, articles, essays, and more. So if you're a regular listener to our show, please do consider donating to Spikes, or even better, becoming a regular donor. Even £5 per month can make an enormous difference. To start your regular donation today, just go to spikes-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the Spike podcast. Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous and infamous atheist, has been excommunicated by the American Humanist Association. The AHA announced that it would relieve Dawkins of his 1996 award for Humanist of the Year. It's accused him of using scientific discourse to demean marginalised groups, citing a tweet where he asked why it was socially acceptable for a man to transition to become a woman, but socially unacceptable for a white person to present as black. The AHA said that Dawkins' approach to these sensitive issues was antithetical to humanist values. Ella, what's your thoughts on this? There have been lots of these kind of examples of stories of people either being, you know, stripped of previous awards for things they've said on Twitter or censored for things that they've written about. But this really is quite a remarkable example um, because the, you know, the Humanist Association is supposed to be, humanism is supposed to be about human agency and celebrating hu- the idea that human beings are able to make decisions for themselves, rational, logical creatures who are you know able to think about things who are able to argue about things and of course they're they are undermining the, that whole notion um, and that whole belief in human beings and their agency by doing this to Richard Dawkins because in fact I've been kind of trawling through everything that he said and that and there are Guardian articles that references stuff that he said in 2015 about the fact that he doesn't actually think that you can be a trans person biologically but that he will call you know a trans woman she out of courtesy as if that's you know as if that's a disgusting statement to make an awful thing to do um, but there is nothing at any point that he says that it even comes close to something that you could label demeaning. I mean, he's, I suppose you could call it a kind of a flippant question, but it's an interesting one, especially for someone like Richard Dawkins, who thinks about these kinds of things, made a name of himself for kind of tussling with these scientific and philosophical questions of how do you balance up on the one hand, someone who's claiming that their identity is not linked to reality. So Rachel Dolezal, who is suggesting that she really is a 
black person, despite the fact that she's very clearly not, and someone who's doing a similar thing with gender. Now, you might, there's a political element to this, which is that when it comes to race, the history of blackface means that we find it particularly distasteful for white people to pretend to be black people. But, you know, in a kind of abstract moral discussion that he was trying to provoke on Twitter, perhaps in a futile way, there's something to be talked about there. There's something to discuss there. And so it's just a very dispiriting example of how how flimsy and how thin the humanist association's belief in humanism is, how thin their kind of political understanding of what it means to have a debate about something like gender, that it's kind of unscientific and unreasonable to discuss these things, when in fact, the very idea of science and scientific exploration is to question everything. So I'm unsurprised that this is happening because this is the kind of, as I said, these sort of cancellations seem to be happening every week now. It's it's almost commonplace. And yet this really does feel like a perfect example of how awful these things are, because by cancelling Richard Dawkins and removing his award, they are undermining the very foundations of what they're supposed to be about. Tom? No, I I agree with that. He's been cancelled for heresy, effectively, by an atheist organisation. It's just the heresy he's committed is not against Christianity or Islam. It's against the various woke precepts we have nowadays and the refusal to even just discuss some of these really tricky questions. And I think the thing his comments underline was that you can do two things at the same time. You can wonder out loud and ask questions about how we understand transgenderism, on what basis does trans identity rest, while at the same time not wanting to just, you know, smear trans people and and fuel some kind of horrendous attack on them, which will be exploited by the right. He had this quite apologetic follow-up tweet where he made that very explicit. You can support the rights and dignity of transgender people while still having that discussion, but we do have this kind of religious atmosphere around these things where even to pose the question mm. is seen as wrong. And I think, as Ella was saying, it kind of underlines a bit of a tendency which has existed for some time amongst the sort of atheist communities, it were. And obviously Spike were a radical humanist atheist magazine. But at the same time, one thing that you did notice over the years was this sort of sense of not necessarily a commitment to humanism and to reason, but just a kind of asserted moral superiority over conservatives and religious people because they're kind of just dumb. Mm. That's a bit of a caricature, but I think we kind of see it play out in new form with this, um, which makes even people who are supposed to be committed to, as I was saying, reason, debate, scepticism, are cancelling people on the basis of questioning these new dogmas and these new orthodoxies. So it's a really interesting snapshot about how wokeness and the constraints on debate and discussion that that implies has become the new official religion, really, and that even atheist organisations <laughs> are pretty much signed up to all of that. I really don't think it's taking it too far to compare wokeness to religion. I mean, if you think of the phrase, the the commandment that trans women are women, you know, that is... I don't believe that anyone ever said that until around 2015. I've you know, done a lot of research. I can't find a single publication until around 2015 that used this phrase. And now it's just taken as gospel. And it's not only that it's taken as gospel, you have to believe that you can literally change sex through self-declaration or you're transphobic. And any kind of, kind of even attempt to dance around the issue, to even get close to that discussion as Richard Dawkins was doing, is, is shut down immediately. And then there are also times when religious blasphemy and woke blasphemy converge. And that's in the form of Islam, where Richard Dawkins was also, you know, had some experience with being cancelled over his comments on that. You know, obviously being a militant atheist, 
he's not a fan of Christianity, but he's also not a fan of Islam. And he said some quite <laughs> forthright things. I mean, you, I, I say obviously, but because, you know, people have invited him to events. For instance, last year he was invited to speak at Trinity College Dublin. And then the event was rescinded when they found out that he said rude things about Islam. And you think, well, A, what do you expect? But also the kind of justification given was that it would make people uncomfortable, but it has the same effect of, you know, creating this kind of blasphemy force shield around, you know, a seventh century dogma. (laughs) (laughs) Ella. The one thing which makes this kind of very censorious culture of, you know, having to conform to, in particular, the kind of transgender line, different from religion, is that at least religion, some religions anyway, in the past, had an interest in you know, in converting people and getting people to, you know, of having a kind of debate, whether it be in like the back of the church over tea and biscuits and Christianity or in other ways of getting people to believe. Whereas actually, I think, in fact, the whole, the nature of the, um, in particular, the transgender debate, I mean, you know, transgender campaigners who say these kind of things like trans women are women. And if you don't agree, you're a bigot. They have no in- interest in exploring or explaining what giant leap they are expecting people to take here because of the, the average person is not going to have any truck with that statement, is going to want to ask questions, is going to want to say, hang on a minute, you want me to call, uh, you know, he or she, and you want me to be okay with this no- non-binary thing and, you know, all this stuff that's not, it's that, to use that very contentious term, it's not normal. It's not the norm. It's not what people are used to or perhaps even agree with. But there's no desire to have a discussion about it. Like you say, there's no desire to actually win people over to a different way of thinking. It's very hostile. It's very insubstantial. It's very much like if you simply, all you have to do to gain access to this new religion is to parrot the words. You don't have to actually even believe it. You just have to say the right thing. And that's why you need more people like Richard Dawkins, who are, even with his uh, apology, which isn't quite a, a rowing back on what he said, but someone like Richard Dawkins who says, well, hang on, we do need to talk about this. What what about this tricky issue? If you agree with this view of, um, you know, kind of the extreme transgender line that you have to accept that trans women are women and trans men are men, and there's no question. And, you know, that are a completely different way of looking at gender. Do we say similar things with race? Do we say similar things with disability? Do we say, you know, where's the line? What what are these different circumstances and how do they fit into our understanding of society and how we relate to each other? Because unless you ask those questions, then you end up having a very small, very extreme, very unhinged at times set of campaigners who often just operate online, able to set the agenda for the rest of us, and that's, you know, we've talked about this many, many, many times on the Spike podcast. That seems to be what's happening. You know, tra- in particular, transgender campaigners say jump and the UK government says how high. And, you know, all the rest of us, women out in, in society and in public are thinking, what the hell is going on? Thank you for listening to the Spiked podcast. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now.